Good afternoon. My name is Emma Dawson. For those of you who don't know me, I think I know most of you. Um, and we meet today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and thank them for their custodianship of the lands on which we meet over many generations, lands which were never ceded. Um, welcome to the June it's June, isn't it? Luncheon, uh, John Kane luncheon here at Graduate House at the University of Melbourne. It's lovely to see you all. One of the bigger crowds we've had for a while, although we lost a few people to the latest COVID wave. So stay safe, all of you. Um, we are being super cautious at per capita. I'm absolutely delighted today to um, introduce to you for those of you who don't know him, um, Mark Considine, who has written um, a book that I was very proud to endorse and called Essential to Understanding Where We've Gone Wrong and What We Can Do to Restore the Integrity and Utility of Social Services in Australia, is the quote from me on the back of the book. I think I also said I thought it was the most timely publication on social policy I've read for some time. We do have some copies of available for sale. Not many, because I keep giving them away to people and going, you have to read this. Um, it is really... Yes. Hi, Ed. Yes. Yes. How much is it so I can leave the money? Meredith, how much is it? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. $35. Um, and we can arrange copies for other people if we run out here too. Um, this is an excellent uh, look at what we have done with essential services in Australia uh, through outsourcing, privatising, um, and creating now a system that is uh, largely in the hands of the market, whether that be for profit or non-profit. Um, I shan't say too much because Mark's here to talk about his own fantastic work, so please make Mark very welcome. Thank you, um, Emma, and thanks again for the endorsement. Uh, it's always slightly embarrassing moment when the publisher says, we'd like to go and ask some people to write an endorsement on your book. Um, and you can make suggestions about who those people might be if you like, but we have a list. And I said, look, I'm, I'm happy to go, to go with your list. Um, and uh, then you sit back and wait, because it's up to the, the book publisher exactly what they put on the cover and, uh, and what the quote says. and not until you get your advanced copy of the book and you say, oh my goodness, such, <laughs> such eminent people and, they, and they've said, you know, surprisingly nice things. So um, it really has, um, it's helped the book and as many of you in the room would know, having been associated with um, uh, research and policy development and, and probably with, with, uh, with book production, there's a certain moment with anything you've worked on where it stops being you and becomes something else. And with a book, that's when it goes into people's hands and they start uh, responding to it, um, agreeing with it, disagreeing with it, uh, asking for for different a different story. It's uh, the, the the book then becomes a kind of a thing uh, that you were part of at one stage, but but is then part of something else, part of a hopefully a dialogue, um, a debate. Um, uh, argument, sometimes furious argument. And we're in that stage now. The book's been out since October. Not everybody uh, loves it. Um, a, a lot of people have uh, responded, much, many more responses to this book than any of the other um, more academic publications, I guess, um, that, that I've been involved in. It has um, hit a nerve um, in many uh, parts of the policy community. 
but also in the broader community. This is the first time I've written a book where, where uh, unsolicited um, emails and phone calls and, and uh, handwritten letters um, from people have, have come in to sort of say, like, I read this bit and I wanted to tell you X, Y, Z. So I hope in the context of, of today there's uh, plenty of opportunity for uh, that kind of feedback. Um, I'm, I'm quite, I think I'm quite good at taking criticism or, or suggestions for improvement, but I'm also interested in the ideas uh, progressing and how we, how we get um, what's involved in this story um, developed into a, a way and a shape that it can make a difference to what are an alarming number of um, uh, common problems in the Australian social service story. And that's the major theme of the book. I'm not going to um, rehearse the whole book. I thought I'd spend the time available um, d drawing out some of the bigger uh, uh, themes of the book and some, some examples and then leaving it to the conversation afterwards and, and to your uh, reading if, um, if you get to the book itself. The starting point really was the recognition that we had had this welter of uh, Royal Commissions and inquiries, Productivity Commission reviews, um, parliamentary inquiries in the broader social service sector over the last seven or eight years, all of them drawing attention to fundamental, disturbing and unresolved uh, problems. Not exactly the same problem in every case. It's, this is not a sort of one problem fits all story. The, the, these are complicated policy areas, as many of you in the room would know, having worked in, in these sectors. But I thought there were a number of themes that were worth uh, testing. Uh, some family resemblances, I call them, in, in uh, a number of the uh, re reviews and diagnostics, and in some of the work we'd been doing over a long period of time in the employment service uh, sector. One of the key common issues, if not common problems, was the recognition that the, that the system for delivering social support in Australia had become much more uh, dependent on a service market framework than had once been the case. Service markets are not real markets in the way that economists uh, uh, or consumers would understand them. Uh, th they're a method of delivering services through multiple agencies who compete at some level, usually for government attention first of all, um, and then perhaps for um, clients or customers. The long journey of uh, producing a social service system that was delivered primarily by social markets and not simply by uh, governments with the support of other agencies is a journey that really had started in the US uh, in the 70s and 80s with a very deep fundamental critique of the role of government in welfare more broadly. And that critique used the harsh language of welfare dependence to shame anyone receiving social assistance and to largely diminish most of those involved in providing it including, in particular, government itself. And that so-called war over welfare was won by um, a new coalition of popular ideas that included the notion that government would get a better deal for its citizens if it had more choice about who was delivering those services. 
and that if clients would do better if they had more choice about who they went to for help when they needed assistance. This was the seductive and in my view ultimately failed idea that choice and control belong together in a service and that if you maximise the amount of choice that's available you will solve a whole series of other issues first of all for the government but secondly and perhaps most importantly for the service user. We weren't alone in embracing the great um, ideas of the so-called choice revolution. That's a, that's a term the Swedes now use for their experience of this. I'm not sure it was a revolution, certainly it was a very big deal. Um, and the idea inherent in the choice revolution is the notion that when things don't work out for you, you can exit. And the exit option at the base of all of the model building for the government side of this and for the client side is the most powerful engine to drive better behaviour by providers and empowerment for clients to shift to another option. We'll come back to exit and the failure of the exit idea as a driver for service quality. But at the time it was, um, in the late 80s and 90s, at the time it was being um, championed, including by the so-called third way uh, Labor governments of that era, it was, I have to say, a very attractive, one, one might say um, entrancing um, idea. And it came to underpin a whole series of reforms to the way in which different services uh, were delivered. It had significant consequences, first of all, for the way government itself thought of its role and structured its role. Very often it meant governments chose to step back from frontline services and to take the view that their best job was to buy rather than make. And with public sentiment in mind and the growing dissatisfaction with privatisations in other parts of the economy, it was typical, certainly in Australia, to stop talking about this as privatisation and talk about it as procurement. So governments decided they'd be better to steer the ship of state and have non-government mercenaries do the rowing. Not surprisingly, a very large industry of private agencies quickly jumped aboard. Now, the book, as you'll see if you get to the end of it, or if you skip to the end, uh, does not argue against private provision of these services. I'm not an advocate for um, turning them back to a government uh, delivery, and you'll see why as, uh, as I progress these uh, few remarks. But it is true that the particular model that was embraced in almost every case did put private agencies in a position to dominate the service model. Now the enabling tools to make this new economy of service markets operate was pretty similar across the board. Some variations between um, aged care, for example, and childcare. Um, some differences in, in those services like unemployment services where there's compulsion on the, uh, on the client to participate. So they're not the same, but the, the, the broader toolbox was certainly uh, common. 
a lot of emphasis on pricing of the, of the service or the service components and trying to get that pricing um, exactly right so that it, it had some margin for profit but not too much, uh, but not too little either or you wouldn't get um, a, a, a group of uh, willing providers. A, a huge investment in contract writing, um, a, an overwhelming in some ways um, deluge of, of, uh, of service requirements on, uh, on departments to, um, to create, write and manage um, contracts. And a, a huge investment in what I describe as top-down regulation. In the employment services story, um, as May and others in the room would know, we reached a, a, a sort of zenith at one stage where the, the number of pages of regulation, if you included the contract, it just tipped 2,000. Um, and in any one of those 2,000 pages were tripwires nasty enough um, to send you out of business. So there wasn't anything there that you could afford to say, don't read chapters five to seven, that's just, you know, filler. All the way through those uh, regulatory requirements were um, potential um, fines, uh, loss of uh, license, loss of credibility. What had happened in, as a footnote, what had happened to employment services and what began to happen pretty quickly in, in aged care um, reminded me of a story we used to um, use in class, which was the, uh, a famous case study of the um, Forest Service in, uh, in the US, uh, where in the 50s and 60s um, the, the, the service bureaucratised as a result of uh, trying to set national standards across all the different forests and, uh, 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 in every different state in the US. And their method for doing that was to create a kind of rule book for what should happen in, in, a, in, a, um, in a forest that was under the control of the service. And it too ran eventually to many thousands of pages. And when, you, when the academics got to work studying it, what they discovered was that every time there was an incident, there'd be a new rule. So the, the, the high point or the low point of this was the, uh, reached when um, somebody in Congress pointed out that we now had rules for the way parents stand while pushing a swing um, in a, a playground if it's in uh, a, a national park. And thankfully they went to work in, in chopping down the rules. So we, we had this, this process where uh, the regulatory regime uh, continued to expand its reach to try and fill gaps or deal with uh, a misbehaviour or perceived misbehaviour and so got bigger and bigger. And guess what, it's not surprising that when, when that's the regime um, you may catch the, the bad but what you certainly do is raise the costs um, for all the good. Now some services continued during this period to run without social markets. And there's a chapter in the book on maternal and child health and another one on aspects of occupational health and safety that show um, that there are different models, that not everything went the same way. Um, I haven't got time really to talk much about those today except to say um, in those alternative services are indications of why it is um, that a public, public service mandated service model um, is the linchpin to understanding how you manage multiple service delivery. One of the, the, the interesting and, and also worrying aspects of this general shift towards social markets has been the political um, consequence. 
At the time, Labor governments believed that bringing private providers into areas like uh, employment services would help make the model robust against future governments uh, undoing their reforms. Here's Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Paul Keating um, quoted at the launch of the employment service reforms in the late uh, 1980s. He began by favourably comparing the market that was about to be created with the quote, public monolith, unquote, that preceded it, and that's the CES. And in Keating-esque fashion, he quickly revealed the overt political motive from Labor's new, for Labor's new affection for the private service provision. And here I quote, one of the things you've always got to do when you think about social reform in Australia is make it Tory-proof. You've always got to Tory-proof them. You've got to hermetically seal them so they can't get their nasty little right-wing fingernails under them and tear them away. <laughs> well, they didn't need to get their nasty little right-wing fingernails under them because very soon they owned them. The political um, consequence of the creation of social markets was to produce a much more significant political lobby um, in favour of expanding the private provision, defending the private owners, resisting attempts on public interest or other grounds to modify uh, their behaviour. You might expect that might have been the case in uh, uh, on the Liberal Coalition side, who are a pro-business uh, uh, lobby, and certainly it was. You may well be aware that the, the privatisation of childcare um, was championed strongly from that side of the parliament, and a number of um, senior Liberals also backed their um, interest in private markets by investing in them. But so too on the Labor side. Um, famously, the Rudd family were um, a very significant owner, uh, Therese was the owner, but uh, arguably um, that, that is a, a, an asset that was considered by many to be um, emblematic of the fact that either side or both sides of politics could have very strong uh, material interests in these, uh, in these services. A second important characteristic of the general change that, uh, that, that I try to challenge in the book is that a key point of departure for those who advocated social markets was the idea that um, a publicly provided service would be inherently inflexible. One size fits all was the, was the usual um, complaint, and even senior bureaucrats were, were, were heard to say this. The public service was parodied as a place where, quote, people think they know what's best for you, unquote. And in contrast, service markets were championed as a form of empowerment which respected diversity and the multiplicity of individual needs. You could choose your own adventure. So if you needed childcare, you could go and look at the market, you could compare the different uh, providers, you could even go and have a look if you wanted to, you could see what they were charging, uh, and then you could make a choice about where you wanted to go. And so on through the, through the list of services that were um, uh, drawn across to this social market uh, model. And as I said before, if things went badly for you, the, the killer um, a part of the story was that you could vote with your feet and that the exit power of consumers 
would both drive innovation by the pr providers who wanted to keep their customers and protect uh, consumers themselves from, from bad behaviour. Now all of this is um, wrapping around um, a, a central problem in these services which the book um, talks about, which is that as part of the creation of the service market, Australia, more than any other country that's used a service market method, also decided that they needed to give the entrepreneur a lot of internal freedom to create the service model that would suit their business. The argument from economists is that, that if you want the innovative sort of potential of the, um, of the private entrepreneur, uh, you have to uh, keep him or her freed up from too much regulatory constraint on the way they design their business. And then what will happen is you'll get this flowering of different um, possibilities, like a kind of natural experiment where the best will succeed and the worst will go broke or lose their contract. Same thing. Now in the book and, and elsewhere in, in work we've done, um, we describe this the, the way economists describe it, which is as a black box model of, uh, of service delivery. The criteria in the contract is, is framed around um, what the government is purchasing, what the, what the list of purchased services will be, and evaluated by a list of what the um, outcomes and impacts are that those services are required to produce. And then the methodology in the middle, inside the box, is the entrepreneurial space uh, that's meant to, to drive um, service uh, improvement. We used to hear this a lot, and May would remember this in the early days of employment services, the, the pub public, the private providers would stand up and say that this is our um, 11 different herbs and spices, secret herbs and spices, the emphasis on secret. Well, it's not Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the, the the secrecy of the black box model, the lack of transparency about what the service delivery um, uh, mandate is, has been an endemic problem right through uh, the Australian story. And one of the key arguments of the book is that um, the, the road to reform um, has to sit not on simply trying to boot out all of the fraudulent uh, providers, on its own, all that will do will raise the level of regulation and the cost for everybody. Um, the, the, the road to reform needs to focus, first of all, on um, what that service delivery model looks like. What, it, what are we purchasing? What, what are we buying into? Um, and instead of a black box uh, view of service uh, development and, uh, and rollout, uh, in all of these cases in, in the book, um, we need greater transparency around what we're building. Now that won't suit some providers who are making money off fraudulent or shady uh, ways of delivering the service. They'll, they'll decide that that isn't great. But in other services in other countries where transparent uh, shared models of service are used in the contracting story, service providers get a better deal. For example, they're not at such great risk of um, a sudden change in the contract conditions that sees them um, out of business in this part of the country and, and offering contracts somewhere else. There's a, there's a no surprises element to those uh, uh, participants who are successful in meeting the objectives of the service delivery model 
and who are transparently good um, at what they do. Now, why hasn't that happened already? There are a number of reasons for this, and it does depend a bit on which service you're talking about. But one of the great innovations of the service market model in Australia, if we can call it that, is that the roughly 20% um, uh, profitability gain for private providers has largely been achieved from reducing staffing costs, reducing the degree of professionalisation in most of the services, and or in some cute but often problematic um, real estate um, deals. In, this, in the services that require real estate, and I'd include VET in this, there are now some extraordinarily shady um, arrangements that um, are sometimes described as ghost colleges, uh, which is a, probably a good name for them. Um, and as we know, in both childcare and aged care, the, the, and certainly in employment services, um, the, the big pressure in the early years of, of uh, the social market model um, was to reduce the cost of frontline staff. Uh, and the more uh, that's driven down, the, um, the, the, the better the margin. So the innovation potential of these models where you operate a black box um, service delivery regime inevitably points into those forms of, of, of innovation. Business systems, the, the, the entrepreneurs would call them, um, but they're business systems which are not directly linked to improvement in the service itself for clients. And secondly, they don't put transparency of the client's interests um, into that model. So we don't know a lot of the time what's happening to clients until something dreadful happens. There's no transparency in many of these services for uh, communities of interest to, um, to be involved. As I was talking to somebody recently in the, in the Australian aged care story, and, and as we know from the Royal Commission, it, it is um, is and has been um, a horror story for, uh, for 20 years. One of the things the Dutch did to address similar issues, but they were big on privatisation back in the day, was to legislate to require any institution, care institution receiving government money um, has to have a client board uh, uh, that, that's directly involved. The CEO briefs them on a monthly basis, they see the draft plans and budgets, and in the case of the um, age services, uh, they get involved in choosing the food. Now the effect of that on its own is probably marginal, but the effect of it in combination with other transparency measures um, changes the, uh, the, the, the story from a so-called market model where fraud and misadventure become a very regular part of the diet, and in a system where others are defrauding, it's very hard for honest providers to, to, to maintain their part of the, uh, the sector, so it, it does become a contagious issue. Bidding up the, the, um, the, the, the needs of your clients, saying that they're more needy than they really are in order to get them into a new category. If everybody else is playing that game and you don't play it, guess who's going to be running your service after the next contract round? So getting that level of, of change um, into the way we um, operate, in my view, starts with um, requiring transparent um, service models, empowering the people who deliver the service um, to help create those models. This isn't something that should be done in a dark room by 
um, by people like me, for example, uh, but needs to be done on the basis that this is the agreed standard of, of what, a, what a, um, a great service should look like and how we're going to go about delivering it. Um, and then greater incentives for those services um, to innovate against that model, to show how they could do, they could do it better. Um, not by simply dragging costs out and saying that was an improvement, but making things better um, for the clients. It's done elsewhere, it could be done here. It needs government um, to pay attention. Many other things are covered in the book. Uh, horror stories in some cases, but um, a, a discussion of, of other ways in which reforms and improvements could be achieved. As I said at the, at the beginning, not on the assumption that we need to roll this back to a, a sort of Weberian bureaucracy where it's all done from head office, far from it. We need to roll in the other direction. We need to actually take advantage of the fact that um, having multiple um, agencies, if their um, heart's in the right place, having them involved, using their initiative, um, uh, working um, hard to find new solutions to hard problems, that, that seems to me to be um, a no-brainer. The NDIS might be on that path. The book argues that it's, we're still a bit, uh, we're still early days to, to, to know. It is a bit scary to think that there's uh, over 20,000 contractors in the um, NDIS system, um, and that number's expanding all the time. Um, but on the other hand, they've done something that none of the other services have done well as yet, and that is create a more overt middle layer to help aggregate client interests. And the, and the, uh, the, 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 the LACs, the local area coordinators and the service coordinator um, options are at least a step in the direction of saying vulnerable clients will need some mediation on their side if they're going to face 21,510 private providers all, all wanting to get um, a hold of their package. But more to see on the NDIS front, obviously, and we look forward to um, seeing how the current review um, plays out. I'm over my time, but um, I believe we've got Emma space for um, Q and A. If that's uh, if that's what people want, thank you very much. Thank you.